backroom politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is time for Backroom Politics live from Washington, D.C.'s National Capital Region on Blog Talk Radio. Happy New Year to everybody out there, all of our faithful listeners. It is our first show. It is our brand new year, brand new commentary, and a lot of the same old problems, apparently. But let me introduce our table today. Joining me as she does every Tuesday when she can, she is the former legal advisor to the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 and more than likely future attorney for Oprah Winfrey's 2020 campaign. She is the lawyer we know as Sharmila Dari. Hello, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And joining me as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who worked for last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, and a really, really smart guy. He is the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Happy New Year to you, Alan. Hey, Justin. Flattery will get you everywhere. Happy, happy New Year to you, too. Yeah, well, I, I want to avoid you having to conflict with the president and saying as how intelligent and stably intelligent you are. So I thought I'd do that for you. Obviously, so, we have a. Uh, Go ahead. Let me on that subject. Let me say one thing. Any 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 individual who who feels compelled to call himself or herself a stable genius is almost certainly neither. I give you Fredo. I give you Fredo in The Godfather. Thank you. I give you Fredo Corleone from The Godfather. Hey, we have obviously got a lot to talk about. Uh, there is so much going on since we were last on in 2017 at the end of December. But the big news today, the, brank, the, the breaking news right now is that uh, this afternoon the president brought in a bipartisan gathering in the cabinet room at the White House to discuss the latest situation with immigration reform, and in particular, the situation dealing with DACA. DACA, for those who don't know, is, uh, is basically a deferred action against children uh, who came in here to the United States illegally, whose parents brought them here. They were so young that they were not aware of what they were doing was, in fact, illegal. And if they are working, it, well, DACA, the DACA program allows them to uh, get driver's licenses, go to public schools, uh, get jobs, pay taxes. It is a program that is about to sunset, and there is a growing argument here in Washington as to whether or not that program should continue. Uh, Sharon, let me start with you. The, the, the Democrats have been pushing, uh, extending not only DACA, but invoking what everybody's calling some sort of Dreamers Act. But Republicans are fighting it, saying that they're not really thrilled about a possible pathway to citizenship for those who came in illegally. How, how does... The Demo- how do the Democrats and how are they able to move forward in pushing something that Republicans believe 
is an illegal act and they're being rewarded for illegal actions. Well, surprisingly, I think their biggest help and their biggest hindrance is going to be the president. Um, You won't often hear me saying complimentary things about Donald Trump, but I do think when you hear him speak about the Dreamers issue, I do think that he has personally genuine empathy for children who were brought into this country when they were very young and have only known the United States as their home. I think when you hear him talk about it, he actually does have genuine empathy for those children, and he does want to help them. So I think that is one um, one thing that is in the Democrats' favor. I think, unfortunately, the president is pulled in such, so many different directions, and he has no coherent policy agenda that it's going to be really hard to capitalize on that. I thought it was really interesting that the same day he, he uh, the president announced that he wanted this bill to be an act of love or a bill of love, uh, his former immigration compadre, Sh- Sheriff Joe Arpaio, announced his Senate run. And so I think that in the coming year, you're going to see that tension between the people who voted for Donald Trump because they thought he was an immigration hardliner and Donald Trump's actual personal interest to want to help the Dreamers and to want to have another victory that the press will compliment him for. You, you know, Alan so Moore, I, I, I think, you know, the, the answer is that the Democrats have a, a hard road ahead. Yeah. Uh, Alan Moore, Charmel brings up a really good point here. It seems that we're seeing almost a Janus-like uh, stance being put on by President Trump. On one hand, he's uh, you know hardliner, hardline border security, build that wall, Mexico's going to pay for it. If you're here illegally, you're going to pay the price. We're not going to let you in. And at the same time, like we saw today in this meeting, there seems to be a I can't believe I'm saying this a compassionate, empathetic side to the president and the way that he's looking at the dreamers. Does does this kind of bipolar policy action put Trump at odds with his base in particular? Well, I think Sharmila actually was 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 dead on here. Um, that that this is not the first time that the president has said uh, has shown uh, sympathetic understanding to the dilemma of the so-called dreamers innocent kids brought here by parents who were knowingly breaking the law but the kids were just brought along grew up here speak english work don't have a record i mean some of them (laughs) the the ones we're really talking about have to have kept their nose clean um you know there are others who who for one reason or another didn't um but but uh and may or may not have a have a you know, good reason or sympathetic response. But it, it, my recollection is that that his daughter Ivanka was was someone who, fairly early on, kind of brought to his attention the innocence of these uh, so-called lawbreakers. Um, I mean, they are lawbreakers in the in the technical sense, but but uh, they can clearly claim total and complete ignorance of uh, of any kind of breaking of the law. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that, that his sympathy is necessarily a re, uh, reflection of, of bipolarity. Uh, uh, we, we, know, we know, as Sharma uh, as also mentioned, that the, the, this man is capable of, of spinning on a dime from one position to the other. I, I, will, I do think that with regard to the Dreamers, he's been, when, whenever he's 
commented on them and their case, he's been sympathetic. That does not mean that he's prepared to immediately give uh, uh, anything that anyone wants in terms of new, uh, new rights. What he is trying to do, uh, and the Republicans in general are trying to do this, is, is find a compromise with the Democrats where uh, uh, there's some sort of agreement with regard to DREAMers uh, to, to the DACA program, uh, DACA Act, and um, uh, and some of the other things that the president cares enormously about, and so do his constituents, particularly um, enhanced border security, uh, a so-called wall, and, uh, and, a, and a couple of other changes to immigration laws that help feed the numbers, a lottery system that exists with many countries in the world where we let anybody in, uh, just about anybody who can pass just some very basic uh, clearances, uh, but it's a true lottery. Uh, and then uh, a longstanding program to bring in relatives of folks who are here legally, which, which drives up the numbers. And in some cases, uh, brings in people who are, who, who become financially or economically dependent on uh, on the American economic system, particularly uh, elderly relatives of uh, of people who are here legally. Those and you're, are, you're those talking, are also controversial. Alan, and Alan, you're talking yeah. about the lottery visa, the visa lottery, and then the chain lottery system. It's yeah, it's it's the chain, chain immigration visa. system. Yes, yeah. it's um, chain visa system. So those four things are all part of this debate and. The challenge for uh, for the leadership, uh, Republican and Democrat, including the president, is to find some kind of uh, middle ground where uh, there's a there's a DACA fix, if you will, um, and uh, uh, and there's also some increased money for uh, border security, possibly some pieces of wall. Who knows what? how they write this. It's one of the delicate balancing acts and probably inevitably some modification in existing, uh, in existing law dealing with bringing in relatives, the, the chain visa system. And then this the lottery, which grew out of great intentions, but uh, I think has very little broad political support anymore. Uh, it, it, there's, well- there's much more tendency to say, hey, right. if we're going to let people in, let's make sure they, right. they, they, they offer us something and not just well, uh, but, but, win, but, win a contest. Let me go to Sharmla real quick. Sharmla, you know, listening to Alan describe the, both the lottery and chain immigration situation, that is a top priority with the president in any sort of reform he has, along with the wall, Mexico paying for it. When we talk about the, for example, the lottery visa system, it appears that the president is capitalizing on America's lack of understanding of how current immigration policy and current immigration law works. I, I mean, he's is he banking on? Oh, wait a minute, hold on, stand by. Let me get back to that. We've got breaking news coming out of Washington right now. MSNBC is now reporting that CEO of Breitbart News and former White House chief advisor uh, Steve Bannon is stepping down from 
Breitbart's organization. He is no longer going to be associated with Breitbart. So this is just now breaking. Again, Breitbart's CEO and former chief no, advisor. Tim, I, to, no, no, he's he's he, he's chairman, not CEO, I believe. CEO, I'm sorry, chairman. CEO. Yeah. Brian, Breitbart yeah. chairman uh, and and former chief uh, strategy advisor to President Trump. Uh, Steve is in fact stepping down. Uh, Breitbart apparently posting it on their website right now. But again, this is according to now several sources, including MSNBC and AP. Um, real quickly, we're, we're going to get to that. Let's just jump into that right now. Uh, is, is, Alan Moore is with everything coming out from the book. I know we're going to talk about the book later, but uh, how big, uh, how big a hit is this to Bannon's credibility politically? Is this the unraveling of Bannon, or does he survive and this goes head to head against Trump? Well, <laughs> this is this is uh, this was probably an inevitable uh, blow. Um, uh, not insignificant uh, coming on the heels of the absolutely uh, horrendous damage done to him by the content uh, of the, of the Michael Wolf book. Um, uh, he, he was struggling, straining, scratching uh, at, at a bare wall, trying to recover uh, some kind of relationship with the president after basically calling his son, uh, treasonous, unpatriotic, uh, and 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 then being then delaying and apologizing uh, for it, uh, and, and talking about how his son Eric was was likely to crack like an egg on television under grilling by Mueller. Those are quotes from Bannon in this book that he has not he Bannon has not denied. He's tried to recast some of what he said, and it was like, no, no, I was talking about Manafort, um, but. But he's the one who clearly made it possible for this guy, Michael Wolf to hang around the, the, the White House for a couple of months and appears to have encouraged people to sit down and talk to him because he was going to do a book that, that in, their, <laughs> in their ignorance and hubris thought might be positive um, uh, to, the, to, the, to the president. Uh, so he, he was – and the president's response to all of this was, was a, a full blitz, uh, destroy Bannon, bury him. Um, and this is part of it. Um, it the, one of the funders for Breitbart um, uh, is a woman uh, named Rebecca Mercer. She's the daughter of a billionaire hedge fund guy, Robert Mercer, who was funding Bannon and the, and the Bannon activities. Robert Mercer, the father, bailed some months ago from being supportive. And then more recently, uh, Rebecca Mercer said, enough. Well, as, as the main financing behind Breitbart, it seemed inevitable that she would insist that he had to step down. And because of, uh, uh, of the financial ties that she has with Breitbart, she has uh, an enormous power. I have no idea whether she ordered it. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if she said this or I'm done. She may be done anyway. Um, it, it's, uh, it's hard to see now where Bannon has a base, uh, a voice um, that, that he can consistently use or financial resources that he relied so heavily for, for the Mercers on and for other uh, 
supporters financially um, uh, or politically of Breitbart, um, for Breitbart to sever its ties with Bannon has to to uh, to be a huge financial hit um, to uh, to Bannon as well as reputational. Um, and and uh, is he dead? I don't know. A lot of people get declared dead and then they have new lives. But he's going to have to recreate something else for himself because Breitbart and the money behind it are now done. So he's in a deep hole and is going to have to decide where to go from here. Um, and it's very expensive to do what he's tried to do. Uh, he, he, he helped build Breitbart before he joined uh, the presidential campaign. Uh, but now uh, it's nothing to him. And even if he's a multimillionaire, um, the, the kind of stuff he's hoping to do or was hoping to do would, was going to be in the tens of millions of dollars of investment. And that's done. That's gone. So, so is the expectation that uh, the idea that uh, Steve Bannon had about primarying every major Senate candidate, every sort of Republican candidate for Congress is that now been pretty much, or that whole plan been pretty much tabled and bright and uh, Steve Bannon now neutered. So I'm going to disagree with Alan. I feel like I, you know, this is bizarro world where I am out here defending Donald Trump and talking about how Steve Bannon's not done yet. But um, I don't think this is the end for Steve Bannon. Uh, you know, Justin, you and I discussed this previously, but. I think that, yes, the Mercers did pull their support, but there are other there are other fish in the sea, right? There's still Sheldon Adelson. There's still Foster Freeze. There's still uh, Ken Lango and the, the Home Depot guys. There's a ton of other rich people out there, and Bannon was courting them, you know, very recently. I think in October, Politico had an article about how Bannon has been courting, and they've been meeting with him, um, you know, people who were used to be staunchly in the Mitch McConnell camp. So I don't think, yes, I think temporarily, you know, probably for the next three months or so, Bannon's going to be persona non grata. And even if people are meeting with him privately, they're never going to say so publicly. But I think his future is going to depend much more on the ability of the Trump administration to get anything done. And given the president's actions, you know, thus far in office, and given the way he started 2018, I highly doubt that that's really going to become a reality, that all of a sudden the Trump administration is going to become excellent at governing and that, you know, they're going to get all this legislation passed. I think that as so long as the Trump administration and the Republican Congress remain dysfunctional, there's going to be a big audience for what Bannon is selling. And so I, I do not think you can count him neutered or count him dead yet. Far from it. But but, Sharma, it, it seems to me like it's those names that you've mentioned, uh, Sidney Edelstein, uh, the, the, those who backed uh, people like Christine Jeb Bush in the primary. Uh, Breitbart burned, I mean, Breitbart, Steve Bannon burned a lot of those bridges by cornering the far right voting base that supports. Donald Trump, is this a matter of that's those bridges are so totally burned he'll never be able to recover? I, I just don't see people like Sidney Adelstein just jumping on with Steve Bannon and going against 
the leadership of the party, particularly with some of the arm embracing that's been going on between the White House and the GOP, quote unquote, establishment. Well, Justin, I I think that you're conflating the fact that they're Republican donors with what these donors actually want, right? Like, you look at someone like Sheldon Adelson, he does not care about 90% of the Republican agenda. What he cares about is Israel. If Steve Bannon can show Sheldon Adelson that he is more pro-Israel and, you know, more focused on Israeli rights uh, to the detriment of the Palestinians and any of the other Arab nations, then then Sheldon Adelson will give money to Steve Bannon. It's that simple. And so I think Steve Bannon has a much more <laughs> Let me in here when I get a chance. What, All right. What keep, keep going, Jeremiah. Keep going. I think, I think that, again, like I said, I think that, you know, for the time being, yes, Steve Bannon is toxic. But I think that in the long run, if the Trump administration can't produce results, if Mitch McConnell can't produce results, then Bannon is going to be a natural alternative, right? Because what do you need to produce results? You need a consensus. Right now, the Republican Party is split in, into two very distinct fragments that can't align with each other, let alone align with Democrats. So Steve Bannon's solution is get rid of the guys in the get rid of the moderates, get you know get a majority of right wingers in there, and then we'll get results. And but that's not, I gotta believe that's not wrong. I gotta believe Alan Moore uh, when we look at you know. Understanding the fact that you know, we have Sydney Ailes, uh, Sheldon Adelstein, we have uh, the Mercers, but I have it a hard time believing that Bannon is either being courted or could make amends with people like, let's say, the Koch brothers. Or um, Bannon was never in know. with the Koch brothers. The Koch no, brothers no, no. But what I'm saying is, out. But, but out of all the big money donors that has to come to the table for a Republican win in 2018 and a Trump possible reelection, they've got to go and get, and get on their side people like Woody Johnson, the Koch brothers, Norman Brayman, uh, Ken Langone, who, you know, you mentioned Home Depot, that's Ken Langone, uh, Joe Ricketts, those guys. These are not guys that are necessarily Trump camp supporters. Alan, am I wrong in this? Well, (laughs) whether they are or not, they're a lot more likely to be supportive of Trump and the Republicans than they are now of Steve Bannon. I don't know why we keep talking about Sheldon Adelson. It's Adelson, by the way. Um, oh, what are, what are you saying Adelstein? It's Adelson. I'm well, sorry, you're right. Adelstein or something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Bannon has been courting him for years without much success, and <laughs> this is hardly the time that a Sheldon Adelson is going to step up and say, "Oh, everyone else hates you, so count me in." That's not that's not how these guys function. I think. I think maybe Sharmal and I are both operating with a little wishful thinking. I'm hoping that that Bannon d- disappears. I don't know that he will, um, but he is horrendously weakened. I think Sharmala is hoping that Bannon stays around so that the Democrats can continue to hammer uh, Republicans for somehow hanging out with, associating with, uh, being involved with uh, this this 
this guy who has an ego that's about as big as the president's, which is really saying something. Um, and, and, uh, and, and who, and who completely blew apart, uh, an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, it, one of the things he, he, he said in the book was that he had an enormous amount of power and he was sort of bragging about his power, but that, but he was a staff guy and he wasn't very good at being a staff guy. So he wanted to, he wanted to be able to do his own thing. And perhaps if the president didn't run in 2020, maybe he would, he would run for president. That's Steve Bannon who who clearly sees himself as a genius and probably a stable one at that. This, this kind of mindset is, is self-destructive. And in Bannon's case, he wasn't elected president. Now, maybe he'll pull off some miracle, but I don't think any of the big money people that we were talking about are going to fill in after the, the Mercers. I think a lot of the big money guys were thinking, why are the Mercers supporting this guy who appears to be damaging to a president that we want to succeed or to a Republican Party that's flawed and divided as it is that we want to, want to, to succeed? We'll see. But I don't see anybody lining up to help, uh, to help Steve Bannon. It could happen down the road. But even – you know, this is going to be a different kind of legislative but, year uh, than, than before. There really is going to have to be uh, some some uh, bipartisanship if anything gets done. Um, and this tax bill, don't underestimate the value of the tax bill to yeah, well, a lot of big money, a lot of big money interests, um, and and people I think are doing a reassessment of. Well, some needed a reassessment. Some were in his camp in the first place of of Mitch McConnell and and other Republicans. But notwithstanding, notwithstanding Alan Moore, notwithstanding the political, you know, the political suicide, the self inflicted political wound that uh, that Steve Bannon gave, it now becomes a situation where, look, Steve Bannon is a walking dog whistle. Steve Bannon corners the market on that heavy, always Trump sacrificed my political life for Trump uh, base that, that helps Trump survive and almost gives him energy to flourish. The, the question now being is, you take that out of the realm, does that dog whistle start whistling to a different drum and saying, you know what, I'm the true savior of conservatism in, uh, in America? Donald Trump has just been sucked in by the swamp. Don't listen to him. Or can Donald Trump take that dog whistle out and keep his base whole? Because right now we're already hearing that Rush Limbaugh and other people, based on what happened today with immigration and DACA, are ready to line up and just smack him in the head. You know. Well, I think that that goes back to what I was saying before, right? That there are there are two competing impulses, you know, for Donald Trump's ear. And I think, again, I think Steve Bannon is smart to, and I, I want to push back on Alan's suggestion that I want Steve Bannon around for the advantage of the Democrats because, you know, I think Steve Bannon's rhetoric and Justin's point, his dog whistling is incredibly corrosive to our society. I am, you know, more than willing to engage in policy debates with 
Republicans who are, you know, reasoned and, you know, empathetic in their thinking, but, you know, the Steve Bannon brand of Republicanism or conservatism I find abhorrent. So I think I agree with Alan in the sense that the world and our country would be a, would be better served if Steve Bannon was a non a non entity in politics. But I being maybe a cynic, I just don't see that happening. So joining um, us on the line right think, now, he it, it, let me uh let me just jump in real quick, Sharmla. Joining us on the line right now, he is the former Democratic political operative and former Joe Biden political advisor. He is the bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Daniel, Happy New Year. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year to you. And based on the conversations being had, I suppose I should let everyone know I'm officially putting my hat in the ring for the top job at Breitbart since Steve Bannon apparently has just been fired. <laughs> that we were just covering that breaking news, Dan. Uh, and we were, Sharmila, I want to, I want to go back to you on this. And then I also want Dan's take on it, but Sharmila regarding Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon is a plus up for the Democrats. I mean, literally if you go to any, I mean, he's a plus up to uh, the Alabama Senate special election he's a plus up to uh just about any election that we had back in november whether it was virginia new jersey and even some of the uh purplish races that we saw out west steve bannon is a polarizing figure i've got to believe that steve bannon going away diminishes a little bit of that hey we're the ones that want to bring america together not this venomous alt-right crap. How do you balance the fact that now you're taking away one of the key polarizing factors that could have gotten a windfall for the Dems in 2018 midterms? Well, I think you still have the figure who is the most polarizing for Democrats, which is Donald Trump. No matter how hard Steve Bannon tries, he's never going to replace Donald Trump in in the eyes of liberals as, you know, public enemy number one. But I and I I disagree that Steve Bannon was the impetus for the the Alabama loss, right? Like that was Roy Moore, right? It was I mean, yes, Steve Bannon and and to a greater degree Donald Trump's support of Roy Moore was a was a gelling factor in getting more, you know, more Democrats or more people to turn out and vote against Roy Moore, but that was 95% Roy Moore was what people were voting against. I think it had very little to do with Steve Bannon. So I think that his... Right, but, but, but Roy Moore is there because Steve Bannon backed him. Luther Strange would have been the nominee actually, and would still be the senator right now. Not Actually, Steve Bannon, again, it's so strange that I'm like defending Steve Bannon this whole, this whole show, but Steve Bannon originally backed Mo, Mo, uh, Mo Brooks in that primary. He thought Roy Moore was a nut job, too. But Mitch McConnell launched so many attack ads against Mo Brooks, hoping that, you know, thinking that Moore was a non-entity and that the contest was really between Brooks and Luther Strange, uh, underestimating Luther Strange's toxic unpopularity in that state. And so Mitch McConnell actually really screwed himself because he bumped Brooks out, and then suddenly it was a runoff between Strange and Moore, and Moore won it. 
had Mitch McConnell not intervened, Steve Bannon was in for Mo Brooks, who he thought was a much more viable conservative candidate. Well, and, well, and, and, and Sharma Char- Char- was ex- absolutely right about about sort of that that history. What what uh, what Bannon did decide to do though um, was once it, it, once his guy Brooks was was not in it, he chose to, to go with the nut job. Now, in fairness to Bannon, in fairness to Bannon in that regard, nobody knew that besides being a, a nut job. He was also a pedophile, so so it, that was alleged, like, alleged, it, it, alleged, alleged. <laughs> well, to me, he's a pedophile. To you, he's alleged. That's fine. That's fine. Um, uh, accused. Uh, I'll I'll just use the shorthand because I believe the women, but you don't need to. Okay. Um, so no, I'm looking at it from a legal so, standpoint. I don't want to get sued. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we're gonna get, we're like we're gonna get sued. So, um, the the in fairness, to, in fairness to Bannon, um, he didn't he, he didn't realize what he was getting into here. He thought he was just uh, uh, a whack job, right? But who was highly conservative and had a following and had it. In fact, won some statewide elections. Uh, there and uh, and he couldn't abide the notion that uh, Luther Strange, who who was not popular, had his own curious uh, history of becoming the appointed senator to replace to replace Jeff Sessions, um, and uh, and then suddenly he finds that the guy, that the guy he's backing has this grotesque, sick history with uh, with young girls um, and. Uh, and then the the, the president uh, makes his uh, uh, odd choice, um, and uh, it turns about to be it turns out to be disastrous. And you know, you know that Donald Trump blames Steve Bannon for that, but he didn't know quite what to do with it because with right. he he had this odd connection with Bannon. He needed to talk to him from time to time, get reinforced, uh, right? Be have his ego stroked. And uh, until Bannon was the guy who, in, in effect, became the vehicle for this book to be written and, and worse yet, trashed his son, son-in-law, and daughter um, uh, for attribution in the book. The, right. the president, as we know, can forgive a lot of sins against him. He trashes people they trash back and then they're big buddies we've seen that happen with some of the some of the candidates in the uh, in the republican primaries right. but 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 comes to his own children it's a different set of rules it like and, it is for many yeah, of right. us and, you're right and and i just think that breach um uh, is uh is permanent um six months from so now Alan, maybe, maybe we'll go. hear they had dinner but it's hard to, hard for me to imagine it. Alan, let's go to a caller. We got a caller on hold. Caller, you're on with Back Politics. What's your question? Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, my question has to do with the the whole liberal bias we see all throughout not only the education system but the media. And I don't know where you guys are politically, but I find that whenever I discuss this with people who have a liberal background, they they object to it and they get defensive as if that's not the case. And I don't understand how they don't see that. I mean, I don't know if you guys notice the same thing, but it just seems like 
you know, 90% of the news media and entertainment media seems to be very liberal, and any time an election comes around, they always get into a hyper-attack mode against whatever Republican candidate there is. And every time we have a Republican president, the media becomes, you know, extremely, they all of a sudden become real journalists again, and they start to investigate and hyper-analyze every little detail. But when Obama was president, it was non-existent. I mean, they were, it's like they went to sleep or they were hibernating. I just kind of frustrated. Well, Colin, can you give us an example? Well, I mean, look at, I mean, just look at what happened during the campaign. I mean, the media coverage was like, 95 percent close to over 90 percent i believe there was a harvard study that the media coverage for trump was 90 percent negative and the fact that for example you look at every late night talk show host they were all liberal and they were all out of out of their way of being supportive of hillary clinton all the celebrities you see in hollywood the vast majority of news journalists i mean look at all the print media look at the new york times washington post go down the list they're all liberal i mean with the exception of fox news can you name me any other major conservative news outlet, whether they be a newspaper or, or, or a news station? The Wall Street Journal, the Washington yeah. Times, for two for starters. Uh, yeah, but that's whatever. like hold three. On, paper on, hold, on. hold on, hold on, hold on, one at a time, one at a time. Caller, caller, you at, hold on, caller, you uh, you asked a question. Let me go to Dan first, and then I'm going to go to Alan next. Dan, you first. Well, first, uh, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So the uh, conflating the liberal Hollywood, which I will concede outright that most of Hollywood is liberal and has traditionally been liberal um, on social issues and a lot of other issues, uh, though the people who sign the checks, I have a sneaking suspicion, become fiscally conservative pretty quick. Um as far as the conservative media, uh, I just named two off the top of my head. The Wall Street Journal is not exactly a liberal rag, uh, and the Wall Street Journal editorial page is most certainly not remotely liberal. Uh, everyone there seems to uh, worship by, by the altar of Ayn Rand, um, as well as the <laughs> you, Washington Times. You haven't Times been reading it lately, DC. Dan. You need, to, you need to read it again. Uh, Alan Moore, I, I, I will take that into, under advisement. But that Alan said, Moore, your the, turn. The, the 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 idea that there has to be complete parity in order for something to be objective is simply not true. Um, you know, just because somebody says the 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 Earth is round does not mean you need to have an equally valid opinion asserting it's flat. It's just not so. But anyway, I'll defer to Alan on the rest. Alan Moore. Uh, yeah, so so I, let me concede one of the one of the uh, or, or or concede or say that I agree with one of the things that that the uh, uh, that the caller said, um, even if I don't agree with what it what it means, what its implications are. Most people in the news business are tend democratic, tend to be more liberal. It's something about the business and who's attracted to it. And, um, and having said that, having said that, and I think that, that the, the editorial pages of various papers are, are the best measure, but not the only measure, of where we see that with regard to newspapers. The New York Times editorial page 
tends to be liberal, but they invite in any number of conservatives. The Washington Post has historically had a number of conservatives who are regular uh, participants, even though it tends um, uh, to, to be liberal, and, and its own editorial page tends to be more liberal. But they also strive, and they've got the money to be able to do this, to, to have balance. The news parts of these papers, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, tends to be more balanced, although typically you can see stuff that, that seems to, to lean, uh, lean left, lean right. I think that the criticism is, is way overdone, but it's, but, but it's not irrelevant and it's, and it's not total garbage. I wish a lot more people actually read those things um, and paid attention to them rather than get their news from, uh, from Twitter 30 second um, sound bite. and from Facebook. Um, because one of the things that I've seen, and I've certainly seen this with the Washington Post, which I've been reading uh, almost on a daily basis uh, for more than 40 years, is the overall decline in quality. You lose advertisers. You cut back staff. You lose quality throughout the newspaper, uh, including uh, you. You get rid of editors, and you 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 lose quality. You make more mistakes. Now, that's the print uh, world. In the in the TV world, we've got these cable channels, which tend to have to fill up 24 hours or 15, 16 hours. And they tend to, to, to skew even more, whether it's Fox News, which has a bigger viewership uh, than, than I think CNN and MSNBC combined, although not every not show anymore. and not, so on. Not anymore, so, Alan. Not anymore. So, okay, fine. fine. So, so it, it, you, you, point, saw, you saw how is, defensive as a liberal you got whenever you hear Fox News and how that makes you react? That's how no, 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 call her. Let no. me jump, no, 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 so let me jump just, in real quick on that one. He's just talking about the numbers. He's just no, talking call, call about the numbers. I'm talking about Alan are, are the Republicans. No, no, wait a minute. Let me we, we just jump in. Call her. When I jump in, I jump in because we try and keep facts. If Alan is saying something and we know we have facts that state otherwise, we want to correct it. We're not part of. We, we don't do pre-line and we don't do conservative or liberal taglines here. The fact is, is that in the past two Nielsen ratings books, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on which side you look at, Fox News has gone second place to MSNBC. In primetime, MSNBC's primetime has been kicking the butt of both Fox and CNN. Those are just the facts. We're not sitting here getting defensive about the facts. Those yeah, 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 and that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Yeah, All but I that's, that's the exception, not the rule. And the reason that Fox, for the last you know decade, has been consistently finishing first is because they have the corner on the marketplace for conservative news. Because if you're a conservative, you have a very limited number of places to go. That's why Fox benefits from the rating. That's the only reason. If the other yep. news stations would at least have some level of objectivity or have some type of a balance, they would get more viewers. But everyone knows, if you're a leftist, Obviously, you're going to prefer CNN and MSNBC and ABC Nightly News. You go down to the whole gamut here. But when you brought up, you, I asked you guys to name them. You admitted yourself. All you can really bring up is the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, you know, and that's really about that's the only real major ones. And, and, and if you're honest with yourself, 
it's obviously the exception, not the rule. We're talking about maybe 10%. That's it. Okay. No, no, no. That's conservative. Hey, no, no. Here, no, that's, 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 that's not right. Hold on. We got to move on. Guys, the, the local the outlets that the the local television outlets that are owned by uh, I'm trying to remember the the the, the uh, media consortium that it owns something like. 30 to 40% of all local television stations, a huge number, which also means they have Sinclair, um, which means they have a fair amount of editorial control over their, their news broadcast. And there's a fair amount of evidence that they've asserted that editorial control. So yeah, there's actually significantly more conservative media out there than arguably has been reported by the liberal media. So yeah, it's, I hear what you're saying. However, it's also worth being able to distinguish between actual journalism and media commentary. I, I mean, to be fair, for our show, we are commentators. We are not actual journalists, though on occasion we have broken news. And so when you're watching Rachel Maddow or, heaven forbid, Sean Hannity, those folks are, are for the most part, providing commentary on the news and is unvarnished that they are suggesting that there is no bias. They will are most certainly asserting their political biases. It's when something is laying itself out as actual journalism and when the facts are, do not hold up, that's when there's a real problem. And there are many people that have said it. We are all entitled to our own opinion. That's the commentary part. We are not entitled to our own facts. And that's right. where things begin to break down pretty quickly. Right. All right. Listen, so, caller, we appreciate it. Caller, we appreciate it. We're going to move on. Uh, please keep listening. Right. Oh, so, by the way, caller, also check out another conservative outlet for you. Check out Newsweek. Newsweek Online. Very conservative now. Thanks for the call. Yeah, we well, hope you listen to us. Well, let, me, yeah, let, me, let me make one other comment just before it goes, because I think it's a mistake to simply, uh, especially for these national newspapers, um, uh, to simply label them as either conservative or liberal. Because what they all strive to do and invest money in, not as much as they used to, when the qualities decline, is try to, to show some balance. You have some very conservative writers who appear regularly in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And, and those are the two big national uh, newspapers. Does that, not, does that mean they're totally balanced in everybody's mind? Of course not. If only people would actually read those papers – and, and, and check out all sides, we would all be better off. What we've, what we've discovered is that people tend to pay attention to the outlets that tend towards the point of view that they favor. That's dangerous for everybody. I don't like MSNBC, a lot of MSNBC, and I don't like a lot of Fox News. I'm a lifelong Republican. But bothers the hell out of me when I see this skewed, error-filled, uh, invective-filled kind of dialogue. And even on some of those talk shows where they have a, a token conservative or two or a token Democrat or two, those people are neutered a little bit. They're ridiculed. It, it, it's hard to find the, the, the quality of interaction that the public deserves, but – <laughs> won't tune into. Um, and that's just you know, the problem. But, but here's, uh, here's, here's where I'm going to jump in on this is, you know, it, 
everybody knows I'm an active member of the National Press Club. I've been an active member of the Press Club for many years now. And I will tell you that I get disturbed when I hear conservative or liberal media tags being thrown around journalism like that. Uh, I absolutely agree with you, Alan, on the fact that when we look at journalism today, you look at the online news aggregators. I mean, Drudge Report started a trend that started an online uh, an, an online news aggregation. We don't have real journalists anymore. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, a friend of the show, who is a noted journalist, uh, worked for an online uh, venue. And when he first got there, he was amazed at the newsroom because there were no telephones on the newsroom, on the desks. And when he looked around or she looked around, they saw that nobody was working the phones. Nobody knew how to do real, true journalism, finding and developing and working sources, getting scoops, finding all that. That just doesn't exist. That is a result of the short attention span electorate that we have who would rather get their 15 seconds of news off of Facebook or Twitter or off a 30-second soundbite on TV rather than read some of these very, very fair and balanced articles that happen in all print media or digital media sometimes until, until we get a culture back that is going to start taking political responsibility for how they, or personal responsibility on how they're governed politically, we're going to have this problem. And that's why we're going to see 20-year-olds with a, uh, a, uh, a mobile phone having bylines in these large media outlets because that's all they can afford. It's a shame. It's a shame. Uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break. We've got to come back. We've got so much more we have to talk about. We started talking about the book. We started talking about Bannon. Let's move on. We're going to talk about the book. I still want to talk about immigration. We still have to talk about the tax bill. Uh, we still have to talk about what's going to happen in 2018. Uh, lots to cover. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep the discussion going. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from the National Capital Region in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. We'll be back in about three minutes.
talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from your national capital region in Washington, D.C. Joining us, they do every Tuesday, Sharmila Chari, Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hey, I want to continue on uh, from the subject we were talking about before. Um, You know, we've already kind of covered the uh, breaking news coming out of Washington. The the, uh, Steve Bannon, the chairman of Breitbart News, is stepping down from that role after the uh, what everybody here in D.C. is calling the book. Uh, after the book and his comments in the book, which pretty much went after everybody, including calling uh, Eric and Donald Trump's meeting in Trump Tower both unpatriotic and treasonous. Uh, lots of lots of stuff. Let's talk about the book, for example. Uh, for those who do not know about the book, uh, last Friday, I believe, uh, uh, the book Fire and Fury uh, came out, uh, authored by a New York-based uh, journalist named Michael Wolf. Uh, Michael Wolf's book had some really, really interesting I don't know how to call it, vignettes. It's the only way I can think of calling them. But a lot of the uh, a lot of revelations coming out of Fire and Fury by Michael Wolf has really just completely sent ripple effect throughout both the Trump administration and through the nation's capital. Um, Sharon Lachari, when when first of all, looking at the book itself and looking at Michael Wolf, Michael Wolf basically sat on a couch in, and I'm, I'm simplifying this a little bit, but I'm not off according to many people I've talked to. Basically, Michael Wolf just sat on a couch in the West Wing at the invitation of uh, somebody in the West Wing. Many speculate it was Steve Bannon himself who let him come in, but he just basically sat on a couch and let everybody talk to him, and he just notes, and this is the result that we got. Is it Does it surprise you that so many people would just sit down with a journalist and just unleash this stuff? Or does it surprise you more that uh, somebody like a Michael Wolf had that kind of access to key decision makers in the administration? 
Well, I think part of the controversy is that a lot of people didn't realize they were sitting down with him to dish the way they did. Um, you know, Michael Wolf is somewhat notorious. Granted, I don't know much about media circles, but apparently he is notorious in media circles for not being the most ethical journalist. And so while some people might have known he was writing a book, some people might have just thought, oh, he's a reporter who's here with the president's approval. Oh, you know, there, it's kind of unclear how much is how much of his reporting or his writing is from conversations he just overheard in the hallways that he wasn't intended to to hear. So I think that there's um, there's a lot of digging to still be done about his journalistic credibility and um, and kind of the the actual method of his reporting. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the that what is included in the book is false or or made up, but I think that um, his his standards have a lot to be have, have a lot of explaining. Dan Lipner, does it bother you that uh, Michael Wolf didn't do a lot of citing of sources or attributions in the book? It pretty much is read like an autobiography. I mean, I haven't read the book. The most curious thing to me about it is how little pushback there has been on much of the substance that the old theme of of the book about the White House and the president, other than the president's defense of himself as a as a genius, um, the pushback has not exactly hard. Other than than for the true believers, other than that, I consider the book meaningless and and to somewhat to a, a form of confirmation bias for many of us in Washington that have contempt for this institution and this president. But uh, I really care. Alan, let me ask you this: when when we look at um, when when we look at the book, how detrimental is this to Trump, or is this just stuff that we've all known about, and he's just being it on paper for the first time? Well. <laughs> First of all, it's not on paper for the first time. Um, there's some stuff that's on the paper for the first time, but when you say it's stuff we've all known about, um, much of the portrait that's being painted uh, reflects what we saw uh, during the primaries, we saw during the election, and that we've seen uh, in many cases uh, to our uh, horror or to uh, <laughs> to our uh, d- depressed uh, real-world view um, uh, what what kind of a presidency he's going to run, which is a presidency that's way, way, way too much uh, like a campaign with, with the indiscipline, the narcissism, um, the attack at, at, at all costs, the, the willingness to be have his attention diverted at any moment with something critical when he gets off a message that might actually be useful and might help him, uh, other, other Republicans, not to mention the country itself. So, uh, I, I sort of like, I, I, I sort of agree with Dan that I, it, there's, there's some, there's a whole book of stuff that, that kind of reinforces, um, uh, the narrative uh, that's been out there. There's a few new things. We talked quite a bit about Bannon and his curious choice um, 
to to go on the record for a bunch of stuff and and to including going after uh the uh, uh the, the the president's uh, uh children um uh, and, and son-in-law but but um having said that there's the, the, this for me overwrought response like Oh my God! It's worse than we thought. Get him out. Um, and <laughs> I've never been a fan of this president. I've been very, very critical of him. For me, it is his temperament that is unsuited uh, to the president. I have no doubt that in, in in any number of ways he's a very smart guy. Um, uh, and even though his business is unorthodox, he's succeeded at it. He succeeded on television, um, in spite in spite of the odds. He he he's been able. His administration was able to, uh, and the Republicans in general, able to accomplish a few things this year, not trivial. Um, and and yet, the narrative about him, mostly created by him, and his indiscipline. And his his insistence on tweeting and attacking through tweet, no matter what the subject at hand is, is doing the greatest harm to his presidency. And now feeds the narrative that he may not be stable, that that his mind may be uh, deteriorating. He feeds that narrative with with the indiscipline and reports about his lack of curiosity, lack of preparedness, short attention span. It's, it's not new, but it's all put into this one place. Um, and, and, but I think the, the, the overreaction to it causes a, a lot of Republicans to say, wait a minute, wait, I'm talking about Republicans who deal with it, people on the Hill who in the in the minds of, of of critics have all sold out but in my judgment are people saying no 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 he he's different and he creates problems for himself and others but he's not crazy um and other people say no he's crazy he's got to be crazy um and and uh uh it, it's it, unfortunately by his his overreaction he 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 feeds that too. Um, we'll we'll see so, how this plays out. One one word on the uh, on the on, on Wolf, just so you understand how how the how the West Wing works. You walk in a door that sometimes shows up on 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 TV. You go you know, there's a Marine guard at the door. There's a desk inside. Right. You state your business, and then you sit down. In a very in a pretty small room, room for a few couches. It's not a big room, but that's as far as you go, unless you are invited to go elsewhere. You don't get out of that room. Most people pass through that room in the course of the day because you've got the cabinet room, the Roosevelt room on one side. You've got the national security advisor, the chief of staff over another side. You've got an upstairs, you've got a downstairs where there's a situation room and so on. It, it's not that big a place. And what Wolf was apparently doing, and he was living in New York, he'd come down a, a day or two a week, and he'd, 
with permission. It has to be Bannon, but apparently right. Kellyanne Conway reportedly was also a part of this. It's like they, he had somehow persuaded them or convinced them that he that because of some newspaper, because some magazine article that he'd written that was you know reasonably complimentary of some of of of, of uh, uh, President Trump or of Donald Trump. Um, they thought, hey, we, he's, he's going to do a book, so it's not going to embarrass us tomorrow or next week. A book, and he's a guy right. who, who might might be helpful. Let's let's right. give him so some access. Let's, let's encourage people right. to talk to him. So the, the so bottom line he here wasn't is wandering that he, the halls. That, he wasn't he wasn't wandering the halls and picking up conversations. No. He's he's in the one room, or he's invited to go talk to somebody. Right, but we but basically he was not there he didn't even have he didn't have a press badge he wasn't a member of the white house press corps uh he never sat foot in the in the in the press briefing room he just sat there at the invitation of whoever and basically took it all in so joining us right now on the line joining us rather late than never he is the former one-star admiral from your united states navy he is the man we know as admiral ken caradine admiral ken Happy New Year to you. Uh, happy New Year to everybody. I apologize for my tardiness, but the doctor says that I'm alive and well and will be bugging you for many years to come. Yay. Oh, my God. Yay, doctor. Oh. Yay, doctor. Hey, um, Admiral Ken, you know, looking at some of the revelations here, uh, there were some really, really uh, disturbing revelations coming out of this book. Uh, you know, everything from the president's a germaphobe and eats McDonald's so often out because uh, he's long afraid of being poisoned, uh, all the way down to Trump had no interest about learning about the Constitution to the point where it was revealed that he didn't even think in his own mind that he would ever win president. Um should this book be a disturbing wake-up call to America as far as taking personal responsibility for how we vote and how we're governed? Uh, it should be, but I don't think it will be. Uh, and the reason I say that is um, most people who have been dubious of the stability of uh, Donald Trump and now as, as president are um, – are I guess surprised by some of the revelations that have that have uh, come out in this book. Even be you know like well, you might be one of those 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 internal I told you so. Uh, I think the country is pretty much uh, divided into into thirds right now. Uh, there's the thirty percent that uh, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump shot a guy in uh, in the face in Times Square, they would basically say yeah it's okay. That's the reason for it. Uh, there's the other 30% that uh, if Donald Trump went to put on you, uh, on his right foot first, they would criticize him for putting on, putting uh, for not going to his left foot. And then there are the folks in the middle trying to figure out how did we get ourselves into this? And oh my God, what can we do? To, uh, what can we do to get ourselves out of it before four years are up? That's legal. So should it? Call uh, maybe to the thirty percent that that that's going to back him, but I can tell you, uh, I'm as a as a steer in in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, the northern part of the reddest state in the country. Uh, I can tell you that that thirty percent uh, is not so moved 
uh, buy that book, and I don't, I can't come up with anything to make them be moved by that, by that, by that, uh, by that book. So, Sharmila, let me ask you the same question: Should this be a reason that American electorate goes, "My God, what have we done? Maybe we should take this a little bit more seriously." Again, I have to echo Admiral Ken. I hope so, but I don't see that being the outcome anytime soon. I think that I think that the swing voters, the people who were, you know, potentially voted for President Obama twice and then went for Trump, voted for him because they voted for him specifically because they knew he was an unknown quantity. They thought they knew they, they, what they were getting with Hillary Clinton, and they didn't. They made a calculation that that wasn't going to work for them. And so even though they thought Donald Trump was a little crazy and they weren't quite sure what snake oil he was selling, they thought it might still work. And so I think that perhaps that segment of the population might now read this book or hear the news about it and say, huh, yeah, I guess we made a mistake, but that was a risk we took. And the next time... Maybe they'll go for a safer candidate, but I don't. I don't know that it's a question of personal responsibility. I think that the people who voted for Trump, who were in that situation, knew that they were taking a risk. But I don't know that that would just deter them from taking a risk again. Dan Lipner, are you are you guys picking up? Are you guys picking up an echo? Uh, I'm not. No. Are you guys picking up an echo? Yeah, I mean, like no, Sam. That was a bad joke. I'm getting it as well. No, no. There's a there's a delayed r- repeat of the language. It's like a it's like a one second delay. So I hear Sharmila, but then in the back in the, the deep background, I hear her again. Yeah, no. I'm Somebody's got to turn down their speaker. So it's it's like yeah. Somebody's listening All right, to it. Alan, as, let's go to break. Okay. Take a, we're going to do it. We're going to do a technical. Let's go to break. We'll be back in one minute. This is okay. Uh, this is back on politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Stand. This is backroom politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us.
This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. probably help is if we go back and we try going back live again. This is Backroom Politics live from the National Capital Region in Washington, D.C. We are sorry for the technical difficulties. It happens from time to time. But uh, going back to our discussion about Fire and Fury by uh, New York journalist Michael Wolf, uh, Dan Lipner, I want to ask the question, does the is there anything in the book? I mean, there's a lot of revelations in the book that will probably disturb a lot of people, not only inside the Beltway bubble, but even outside Washington, D.C. Is there anything in this book that should disturb or concern the White House as it relates to the special counsel's investigation? Um, probably. Uh, so the Bannon about the Russia meeting, um, considering he clearly knew something about the campaign that is based on information that he got when he got on the campaign. So uh, there's other stuff floating out there. And assuming those quotes are true, that means there's another topic uh, or another source that Mueller might already have. If he doesn't, another source for him to go after. Alan, should this should this bother the White House that this came out at such a critical time in the special counsel's uh, investigation? Does this put more pressure on the White House to try and fire Robert Mueller? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I have not been one who thought that that uh, they would fire Mueller, no matter what uh, <laughs> what the president's gut instincts might be. Um, but but Dan is exactly right here uh, in, in zeroing in on the 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 Bannon quotes about Don Jr. being potentially engaging in treasonous and unpatriotic behavior. Belatedly, Bannon, of course, said, I was talking about Manafort, not Don. He's a fine guy. Um, But it's also Don who 
who who Bannon said would likely uh, uh, crack like an egg in questioning by by Mueller. So the word treason is it, it refers to a crime the punishment of which could include execution. This is as serious a crime as you can have. Uh, in, 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 you know, sort of national politics. Now, if I'm Mueller and I see those quotes, I'm going to be putting together my list of questions for Steve Bannon, and I'm going to be bringing, bringing him in and saying, let's talk about these things that you have said in the book. Um, now, having said that, does, is the is the president himself implicated in this? Not directly, not 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 my view, not my reading of it. But the, but the danger for the president is, among other things, the possibility that his son becomes a bigger and bigger target, and that that makes him a little crazy. And he. And he and does, he starts saying things, does, doing things, things that things that really that really harm his interests. And you know, I don't rule out the firing of, of Mueller if he thought that that was what was necessary to protect his son or his family. Um, but I, I'm not. I'm, I'm guessing that won't happen. But you can guarantee that Steve Bannon is going to be spending more time with Mueller and his people. Sharma, let me go to you. And, oh. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say I actually disagree with Dan and Alan. I think the more damning uh, excerpt that I've seen so far is Mark Corallo quitting the Trump legal team because he felt that he was witness to an obstruction of justice, right? Steve Bannon is known to be a bit of a blowhard and engage in a lot of hyperbole, but Mark Corallo is a seasoned political operative who knows what he's talking about. If he had concerns about obstruction of justice, I would be taking that very seriously if I was on the Mueller team, much more seriously than Steve Bannon's rantings. No, but, but why don't you explain the, explain the incident you were refer, that, that that refers to, Sharmila, just so that right. in case the 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 oh sorry the um, listeners Justin's Justin's question that I was that was a response to Justin's question about no no whether no the but explain Trump explain the incident that Corallo was involved in. Let, let me oh, do this, sorry. Alan. Let me let me do this. Let let me do this real quick. So the 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 incident that. Uh, Sharmila is bringing up is a situation where uh, on Air Force One coming back from I believe it was a European trip uh, the one of the senior communications advisors to the president, Mark Abello, uh in fact resigned over the messaging development and the, no- and the knowing and blatant misleading lies that were being put into a press statement regarding the infamous Russian attorney Trump Tower meeting. Uh, Sharmila, you're saying that that's a bigger deal? That should be a big concern to the White House legally as it involves the special counsel's office 
his resignation, this, this guy could turn government's witness and be a real threat to the presidency? I don't know that government's – yeah, I think so. And I think it's more damaging because it actually implicates the president. Steve Bannon's statements implicate uh, Donald Jr. and Jared Kushner. But, and, and as of yet, you know, despite what, whatever Steve, Bannon can, Steve Bannon's conjecture, there's no evidence that President Trump met with these Russians when they came to Trump Tower. But Mark Corallo's statement directly implicates the president, and I think that's much more dangerous for them. Dan, you agree? I'll follow up on one item. Well, there's one item there, and I've kind of forgotten about it. There was the one-on-one meeting during a dinner. Donald Trump approached Vladimir Putin without an American translator in hand, and Trump fell back to the same excuse uh, asked by reporters, what what did you and uh, Vladimir Putin talk about? And he said, Russian adoptions in the United States, which is the same cover story that is for Don Jr. So, I don't know. There might be a little bit more there. So, yeah, if I, if I might, um, the, just to flesh this out, this was the meeting that we came to learn uh, Donald Jr. Uh, agreed to because he was told that there might be some dirt on Hillary Clinton, and he brought Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort into the meeting. It turned out that there wasn't any dirt, uh, at least so far as we know, Uh, but instead the uh, Russian visitors used that opportunity to talk about, in fact, a program that that, uh, deals with the adoption of Russian children. Many, many Russians have been adopted by American families. There were many who were in process in the pipeline, and the, the program was shut off abruptly because of some sanctions that the U.S. had imposed on Russia, and they decided to strike back by shutting off the adoptions. It turned out that was what they mostly talked about. It was not the purpose of the meeting, however. The purpose of the meeting was to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. When they were realizing that the, the, that the existence of the meeting was known, they're sitting around on the plane trying to figure out what are we going to say about this. They discover, um, assuming the president didn't know anything before that, but I don't know if he did or not, um, but we don't know that he did. They said, oh, you ended up talking about adoption? Great, let's talk about that. Carollo said, in effect, this is not true. I can't be a part of this. Um, and 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 ended up uh, leaving the administration. Whether right. the purpose you, we, was obstruction, whether the purpose was obstruction or not, is interesting. Um, it's not a slam dunk for me. It seemed to me that they just didn't want to go down that road and embarrass themselves. Um, but it's like there were multiple people involved in the meeting, and they put out this idiotic statement. That ends up embarrassing them, but but I don't think that's going to rise to the level of, of actual obstruction. That'll be up to Mueller. He'll 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 decide. So Admiral Ken, with everything going on as far as the revelations, and you know with Sharma bringing up uh, some of the key designations that have happened within the administration over situations like the one described. Uh, by Carballo, it, it 
it seems to me that uh, either the president is getting bad legal advice and doesn't know when to take it back a notch and you know let you know, be quote unquote presidential or come out swinging like everybody says that he does and make things worse. Is there is there tension or is there frayed nerves inside the inside the West Wing right now? Do you think that this is going to start unraveling very quickly? I personally believe that most of the things that Mr. Wolf put in his book are pretty accurate. Uh, I know he's got a dubious reputation for telling the truth in uh, some of his prior work, but just based on, I think, everything that we've seen in the the last year, um, I didn't find anything of of the excerpts that I've read uh, to to, to cause me to flinch or to shake my head, except perhaps um, the conversation that took place between uh, he and uh, Heather Hicks regarding um, uh, Corey Lewandowski. I found that a little bit bit troubling uh, and surprising, but uh, that's about it. Um, so again, I, I think that, um, you know, the president has shown a propensity to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. There was talk early on about a pivot that he would quit behaving that way. And then there was talk about John Kelly coming in and being able to handle the president. Uh, none of those things have, have, have come to fruition. If anything, it's not that the tweets have gotten any less, um, uh, challenging, for lack of a better way of putting it. It's just that we've just gotten used to it. It's a new norm now. And we're a little less, you know, uh, taken aback uh, this week than we were last week. So do I think things are un- uh, unraveling? No. Do I think they've been unraveled for a while? Yeah. Um, I-, I think, quite frankly, I-, I-, I disagree with Alan. Respectfully, I do think that, that the president is going to try and fire Robert Mueller, and that when he does, I think then um, we will all have a new issue to, to, to deal with, uh, and that it will cause a constitutional crisis. And as I sit here right now, I don't believe that the Republican Party has got the wherewithal to do the right thing. So uh, I don't look at this as being anything else other than just confirmation of what we all have been thinking have been going on for the better part of the last year. Dan Lipner, I was talking to somebody recently here in Washington about the Mueller investigation, and they brought up an interesting point. They said the issue is not right now the collusion with the Russians, that this investigation from what several people are, are saying, and again, this has not been confirmed by uh, by backroom politics or any other uh, source related to the show, but the speculation was that this has now become a issue of financial uh, misappropriations, money laundering, and even uh, obstruction of justice more than Russian meddling. Is there something to that, and is that the biggest threat coming out of the special counsel's investigation, or is Russia still in play? Well, they aren't mutually exclusive because the money laundering in question is Russian money. So, uh, and that Russian money is allegedly not terribly distant from Putin himself. 
as far as Putin allies go. So it's it's six of one and of the other. So the idea that this hits the Trump finances pretty quickly, um, as and then where that connection is with the campaign, if anything, it probably draws the dots a little bit closer, a little bit quicker. The Mueller investigation, from what we've heard as far as the Deutsche Bank uh, uh, request for information, there might actually be a straight line between the Trump family and some of the folks that are alleged to have been playing in the presidential the collusion portion of this when you start drawing those lines and the uh, though the conclusion uh, it's uh, this is escaping me at the moment uh, when working in the furtherance of a, of a of a crime those things could be drawn and it doesn't take much to uh, to to be part so it's still to be seen and the financial records are already there uh, if those deeds were done it's a matter of unraveling them and connecting them to the to the actors Sharmila, is is the is the issue with uh, the revelations that have come out recently, including from the book, that Trump had uh, gone to sessions that several people, the Trump administration had gone to sessions telling him not to recuse, uh, that there was contact for, uh, there was contact with Attorney General Jeff Sessions to stay on board and wreck this fight to protect possibly the president. Uh is that combined with the news that we're hearing that uh, there's more and more mounting evidence that Trump fired Comey because he did not want the investigation into this? Is this meeting, is this in fact, or are we starting to see a trail of a burden of proof that meets the requirements for obstruction of justice charge or other criminal activity? So sorry, Justin, uh, you were kind of breaking up throughout that, so I didn't get all of it, but I think what you're asking about is um, the revelations, and I believe it was in the New York Times that the president asked, you know, the president tasked his uh, White House counsel, Don McGahn, with persuading uh, Attorney General Sessions not to recuse himself from the investigation in order to protect... Right, that's what I was doing, correct. Yes, in order to protect the president from the uh, from the Russia investigation. So, again, I think that you have all these pieces of evidence that aren't that are minor in of themselves, but when you put them all together, you have an incredibly you start to you start to come out with a pretty convincing narrative of obstruction of justice. Um, you know, I'm not a constitutional lawyer or a sort of a federal. Uh, civil lawyer, but so I can't tell you the exact elements required for obstruction of justice, but just from a, from a layman's perspective, it's starting to seem like, you know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, suddenly there's, there's a lot more evidence that there's a duck here. Uh, Alan Moore, who, who's right now with all of these factors coming in, with the revelation out from Wolf, the latest in the, uh, 
in the New York Times revelations regarding the uh, special counsel's investigation. Right now, who's the next target or who's got the biggest of uh, seeing the inside of a courtroom from the administration? Well, as we've said, I think I think uh, still the 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 family is uh, uh, and, and Donald Jr. in particular uh, is uh, is exposed. Whether it's looking at Russian money that might have come into the Trump organization to co-fund uh, uh, projects, uh, the famous meeting uh, in in June um, that that uh, that. <laughs> That Bannon called unpatriotic and uh, treasonous. Um, so I, you know, none of this means that the president is not exposed. I'm just not yet persuaded that there that when you put the pieces uh, together that we've talked about, um, that it it ends up spelling oh my God, felonious uh, uh, obstruction of justice. To me, to me, and I I don't. I don't have a dog in this fight, my God, uh, I, and I have a lot of confidence in, in in the whole Mueller investigation and the people that are that are doing this. And so it's a little presumptuous to uh, for us to speculate. But hey, we get to do that every week. Um, it, it, <laughs> it, it seems to it seems to me that that a lot of what Donald Trump has is is guilty of is the is the behavior that served him reasonably well for uh, 45 years in business that is horrendously ill-suited to to government, saying things incautiously, uh, talking to people without thinking about it, tweeting stuff without clearing it. Um, uh, And in the case of, of, of Sessions, it appears that uh, there's pretty good evidence that that Donald Trump believed stupidly and naively and ignorantly that his attorney general would be his personal lawyer, a la Roy Cohen or a la Bobby Kennedy um, uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Trump view uh, or Trump's view of Eric Holder, which was not my view of Eric Holder, but he had this notion that your, your attorney general is over there to do your bidding. Um, and uh, in the Constitution uh, <laughs> suggests otherwise, that, uh, that the attorney general is there to protect the American people. He's not the personal lawyer of the president. So when the president became aware that his personal choice and loyal uh, uh, early uh, supporter, uh, Jeff Sessions, was about to recuse himself on a matter that was going to, cut very close potentially to the president and be potentially embarrassing and, and drawn out and so on. It was, he, he sends his personal attorney. Now I'm trying to imagine. Okay. So my imagination here is, is probably different than, than everybody else on the line. I'm thinking Don McGahn gets called in. The president says, I hear sessions is going to recuse, get over there and tell him he can't tell him not to. And McCann is, uh, well, uh, Mr. President, get over there now and do it. So McCann goes over there, and in my vision of these things and how people uh, operate, when they're told to do something that they think is just wrong, stupid, illegal, inappropriate, you, you pick your phrase, he goes over to Sessions and he says, he says, the president's livid that you're recusing. Is there any way that you could ch- change your mind on that? 
and, and Session says, God, I wish there were. I sat down with all my senior people, laid out the situation. I had these meetings. I forgot about the meetings. I was therefore erroneous when I talked to the Congress. I can't oversee this thing. They all tell me that. I, I agree with them. They're right. McGann says, I agree with you, but just know that the president feels very strongly otherwise. He goes back and basically says whatever he says to the president. He says he has to. He won't do it. The president's livid. In his mind, he controls this stuff. He can order these people around, and they cannot refuse him. And Sessions is refusing him for reasons we all understand, but President Trump does not understand. That's my sense of what happened there, that it wasn't some horrible, nefarious thing. Now, was it, 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 was it an, obstruct, an effort to obstruct? It, it, it may be, but my hunch is he just didn't understand. He was too ignorant, and he wasn't consulting with anybody else. He had it in his gut. You know, and he knew in his gut that this was his lawyer. He could order him to do stuff, and he would do it, not realizing that there are, that there are laws that right. that prohibit right. him. That would that would completely and totally discredit Sessions. He would he would be uh, neutered in terms of his ability in this town, in Washington, with the press or anybody else to do anything, notwithstanding uh, uh, to mention in the department. And that was a tough lesson for that for the president to learn, and I don't know if he's learned it yet. But that's my view of that particular episode, and it's why, for me, that's not one of the big things in it, that, that 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 has come up lately. It's more a curiosity, and you sort of say, "Yep, sounds like the kind of thing that this president might do." And this, you know, someday Don McGahn will be able right. to tell his story, but he's still so, there; he can't tell it now. <clears throat> So let me let me ask can can this strikes me as um all of this stuff coming out really won't bother the Trump base that Trump has such a lockdown on his base that they're just not going to either believe it or hear it or have it waive their decision making on how they view Trump. Ken? Is that a question? Is that a question? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can tell you I, they are, they are they are wed they are wed to their their perspective that this guy is 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 the best thing that that could have possibly happened to this country. They don't care about the thirty percent approval rating. Um, they, they, they don't, they don't care. The, 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 um, you know, at some point I'd love to talk to you about a, a conversation I had with a Trump supporter down here, but, um, this guy is part and parcel, you know, part of that following and, uh, the, the Russian thing, uh, not, not a big deal. So that being the case, and by the way, we've got more breaking news. This, today's been busy. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein has defied an order by running judiciary member Senator Chuck Grassley. Senator Feinstein has released the testimony transcript from Fusion GPS uh, co-founder Glenn Simpson when they testified in front of that committee. Uh, is Alan Moore 
that's pretty much breaking traditional protocol. Is, 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 is this the beginning of a new fight that we might be seeing in, in the Senate, or is this just the Democrats being ready for battle? Well, hard to know. I was surprised at it, but I was also surprised a few days ago when when the chairman, uh, Chuck Grassley, and one of one of the members of the committee, Lindsey Graham, sent a letter to the Justice Department asking them, just the two of them, asking the Justice Department to look into the testimony that uh, the guy who wrote the Trump dossier, this guy Steele, uh, uh, look, look at his uh, testimony uh, to the FBI, not, not testimony, look at, look at his statements to the FBI uh, to, to see whether any laws have been broken. Well, that wouldn't have been so unusual, except that, the, uh, that Grassley and, and Graham decided to do it jointly rather than follow tradition of working with the Democrats and sending a joint letter from, let's say, Feinstein, who, Feinstein who's, the, who's the ranking Democrat, and the chairman, Grassley. And they have done a decent job of, of working together. The Senate has a, has a better, longer tradition of, of, uh, of, of cooperating, notwithstanding the public perception to the contrary. So I was surprised at that, and that clearly annoyed Feinstein a lot. Um, and and uh, uh, and there's a little bit of me that wonders if this is there's some tit for tat here because she's been saying let's release this transcript and it's not that Grassley is somebody who typically tries to hide stuff. I mean he usually drives administrations nuts by by demanding uh, witnesses and demanding documents and and so on. But uh, there's more here than meets the eye is is uh, I guess what I'm saying and I. I hope it does not bode uh, a, a, a new uh, uh, con- uh, series of conflicts between the chairman and the ranking member, given their joint history. And maybe it's like, you did that, we did this, now we're even, now let's figure out how to work together. I hope that's what happens. I don't know. It, it, it's very strange and troubling. Ken Lipner, the, the stuff that I'm reading right now, that are in that are in this uh, include. It appears now that something that has been speculated for a while, but uh, Steele and Simpson both testified to the Senate Judiciary uh, that the FBI had a source inside the Trump operation, and that the bureau was believed that the bureau was inclined to believe the information that the Steele dossier had brought forward, that's got to be a real kick in the gut to the Trump organization, which values loyalty so much. Does it shock you that the FBI, going back as far as uh, early spring 2016, might have had sources, and this might have been concerned that early? One, I, I, I have yet to, to read what's been released. And second, my question is, is it the Trump organization or the Trump campaign? Um, because if this is the Trump organization, as the Trump, the conglomerate of companies that is the Trump organization, the the money laundering issue predates him. And if this has actually been an ongoing investigation predating everything, no, it wouldn't surprise me much at all. Well, according to the according to the 
files released by Senator Feinstein, uh, the quote is um, Steele in Simpson, Steele told Simpson that the FBI also had, quote, a source inside the Trump operation. What it seems to have happened is they're not sure if it was the presidential campaign or the business, but either way, that does not do well for the president himself, does it? Probably not. And the question is, who's the source and whether or not there's going to be public testimony with, with that source. So it's to be seen. Ken, Ken, Ken Karen, this, uh, this has got to give some pause to the folks over at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. If there's one source this big, there's probably several others if the Bureau's been looking at it that early. Uh, is this just the beginning of what we might see as a larger investigation into the Trump organization? Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. Um, the, the thing that I, I, I can't come away from, that I can't let go of, is that at every turn, um, the president likes to say that, that no collusion has been found, that Republicans and Democrats all agree that there's nothing here to see. And I think the, the operative term a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, was a nothing burger. Well, if that's true, then why do so many people keep getting caught in so many lies? And it just it just makes you want to tug on that thread just a little bit harder just to see what else is going to come undone. And so if nothing else, if nothing else, uh, if this does not lead to uh, a constitutional crisis, that's fine. Um, but, you know, as long as there's some reckoning of the fact that you don't get to have your own set of rules uh, different than what all of the, us other regular Americans have got. You don't get to lie to the FBI. You don't get to put in multiple versions of an SF-153 to get your security clearance. Um, you don't get to be um, dishonest and untruthful uh, in a public event without being called on the carpet for it. Well, i got to tell you something. This has got to make a lot of people nervous in the White House and in the West Wing. Uh particularly uh, the the children. This has got to be a bad news for uh, Don Jr., Eric, and, and even uh, Jared Kushner. This is going to be interesting. Hey, we've got 10 minutes left in the show real quick. There's a lot of stuff we didn't get to. We didn't talk about tax bill. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, there's just so much going on. But one of the things I want to point out is, in case you didn't see it, the president yesterday was supposed to put out his fake news awards, awards going out to the most dishonest, most disreputable news organizations in journalism today. Uh, If you haven't seen it, uh, the late night talk shows, particularly uh, Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, have taken out full ads uh, calling for the consideration of their shows to get those, uh, those awards. D.C. celebrity chef Jose Andre has, in fact, put out a um, has, in fact, put out an edict that whoever wins a fakey, as it has now been called, whoever wins a fakey gets a uh, free lunch with Jose Andres at his restaurant. So, you know, 
not above groveling for really great food with a celebrity chef here. And so you might have seen on our Twitter feed and on our Facebook page that we here at Backroom Politics wanted to be considered a fakey. We figured that if we're doing our job right, we're going to be called out of fake news. So I'm hoping that we're doing our job well enough that the president will consider us for a fakey. Uh, Alan Moore, what do you think uh, our uh, chances uh, are of that uh, happening? <laughs> the, the chances of that are zero. Oh, why? Because are we, are, we, are we fake news? First of all, we don't, we don't even do news. Um, uh, not that right. that would be next, that wouldn't necessarily exclude us, but to be, to be considered, we would have to be known of and paid attention to. So that's where, well, that's, that's why, where I think that's we, why we fall a little short. Admiral Ken, I don't think it moved, moved the needle. Admiral Ken. Alan Moore is not just my golf cart partner, but he's also my mentor. He's right on target. What? Oh, wow, I'm going to write this down. I'm hurt by this. <laughs> I'm hurt by this. I am hurt by this. Oh, ye of a... Dan, do you think that we could actually make a play if we at least got some information out there on social media saying that we are, in fact, fake news, that we would get considered? Not only that, let me rectify all of that now. I heard, and we're going to report this right that, that the most handsome, smartest, genius president ever, as a matter of fact, I think the tallest, fittest president the world has ever seen, is going to declare world peace because of the touch of his hand tomorrow morning. That's what I heard. I think that should at least get momentum. <laughs> Well, you know what? It's worth a shot. I mean, Jose Andres is a really good chef, and we'd really like to have oh, lunch, sure. but I think, you're, I think you're probably right. Uh, anyway. Hey, can, can, um, I, can, I give a shout out, can I give a shout out to somebody? Of course, Alan Moore. I want, to, ahead. I, I, I want to give a shout out to somebody I rarely give a shout out to. So I want to give a shout out to Nancy Pelosi. What? She was she was asked yesterday what she thought about Oprah Winfrey being the Democratic candidate for president in 2020. And she said, well, there's one reason that that could be a really good idea. And that reason is Donald Trump. And then she said, there's also one reason that that would be a really bad idea. And that reason is, Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we've had our TV celebrity star. I want to go back to getting like a nice boring. I'm a governor. fan of hers. Let's go. I, I'm a fan of hers, uh, and I like her right where she is. Ken, Caroline, are you on the Oprah bandwagon? I am not. Dan Lipner, I heard you're going to be her general counsel for her campaign. You most certainly did not. I believe politics professionals, I do not like the celebrity thing that politics has turned into. So I take it that we're collectively not a fan of The Rock running for president? 
Uh, unless the rock wants to run for a lower office first and cut his teeth and learn what making policy is all about and what politics is all about. Um, yeah, maybe in 10 years, he's on a stint in the house and or the Senate, uh, then I'd be game for it. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we've got a lot, we've got a lot of stuff that we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. We didn't even touch on, uh, the latest situation with DACA. We didn't even touch on the news that came out of the Korean Peninsula today that, in fact, the North Koreans appear sending a delegation to the Winter Olympics to compete, that they've actively, ha- they've actively had meetings, bilateral meetings between the North and South Koreans. Uh, we didn't even talk about tax bill. There's so much we've got to talk about. It's going to be a busy 2018, so there's going to be plenty of stuff for us to touch on. But that being the case, uh, we're coming down to the end of the show. We want to wish everybody a happy new year. Thanks for tuning in. We will be here every Tuesday, hopefully, uh, that we can. For the next year, we've got the 2018 midterms coming up, so it's going to be a busy, busy new year for us here at Politics. On behalf of Charm Lachari, who had to drop off, Admiral Ken Carroll, Dan Lipner, Esquire, and the Honorable Alan Moore, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday from the Apple region here in Washington, D.C. for the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Again, you can follow us on our Facebook site, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. You can follow our Twitter feed at backroompolitics. You can also email me your thoughts and comments, justin at backroompolitics.org, and we will respond to those. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. This is Backroom Politics.